Welcome to this very special outspoken event, this somewhat odd outspoken event. Certainly very odd for me to be sitting over here in this chair instead of that chair. I'm going to hand over to Kate in a moment and she's going to, to be, do the interview here. But first, I think I'd like to just uh, take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we've gathered. They are the, uh, the story keepers of this place. And uh, those stories date back to a long time before any of us. And I think it's appropriate that we also acknowledge those who are, are working actively towards a reconciliation between all of the peoples who live in this country. So I'm going to pass over to Kate now. Kate is known to almost anybody who has any interest in literature in Australia. She works on the Books and Arts Daily on Radio National at 10 a.m. every morning, every weekday morning. And she also has Books Plus on a Sunday, uh, which she presents herself. So over to you, Kate. And thank you very much. It, uh, please put your hands together <laughs> for Kate Evans. Well, Stephen, thank you, and thank you, everybody, for inviting me here to this um, Mulaney Festival. But because I'm in your usual seat, everybody who approaches a book interview has a different way of doing it. How do you usually like to start? <laughs> um, well, I, norm I normally actually tell the interviewee what I'm going to ask them first up. So. <laughs> <laughs> I never do that. <laughs> Well, I think I'm obliged to start then with the question of place, because in this beautiful book, Hinterland, we're in the hinterland. We move between the town of Winderen, is yes, that Winderen? Yes. But also memories of Petersham and of Queensland politics, of histories and former lives. How much is the town of Winderen shaped by this place, Mullaney? Well... Straight to the difficult I mean, question. Look, it, 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 it's not going to take you long into the book if you live in this region to realise that it, the town of Windaren is geolocated with Mullaney. I, I, I think you know, that's out in the open very much, but I think it's also very important to understand this is a work of fiction. It's, it's about, it, it could be set in any hinterland region, and there are quite a lot of hinterland regions of Australia, and there is also that kind of metaphorical hinterland, which is those places that we kind of keep a little bit back away from things. And what I've been trying to do, well, I guess what I'm going to say is I don't have a lot of sympathy for this idea of using other people's lives just to populate my book. So I, I do write fictional characters. I, the, the characters in this book are, are made up people. They're not real people. They're not based on people who live in this town. And I think there might be some types. I think people, as you're reading it, might be able to say, oh, yeah, I know that sort of person, because hopefully that is representative. But I also think that I don't have any right to do that to, to individuals' lives, but I do have a right to talk about a place. I've been living here for 28 years. I have a very, uh, I think I have a very profound connection with this place, and I wanted to talk about the history of it, and I wanted to talk about uh, the social the way that people react in country towns, the way they live to, with each other and how things, how they relate to each other. Uh, I said in an interview recently this thing that uh, people in country towns have a tendency to coalesce into social groupings. And, I mean, they do in cities as well, of course, but in country towns it's writ larger, that kind of separation. And if there's a conflict enters that situation, 
in a country town, that fragmentation can quickly become a, 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 a fracturing. It can become much more serious. And I wanted to explore that. Well, in any place, and whether it's a small town or a city, having characters who can move between different stratas of society is often a challenge for a writer. And in crime fiction, it's often done through the character of the policeman, because they can cross class divides, they can go anywhere. But you've chosen a doctor, well, a pair of doctors, really. And I wonder if they have the same sort of role, because particularly in a country town, doctors can and do go anywhere, don't they? Well, that's exactly... The, I mean, it's a bit of a cliché to be writing about a country doctor, and, and I, I kind of was a bit reluctant to do that. But in this, this idea of, of uh, separate social groups, I thought that the only person who had access to everybody and who was not aligned with any of them was the local doctor. And as you say, there's two doctors in this book. So the, the book opens with the character of Miles, who's the, uh, the third generation of Prentice doctors in the region. And then his character is in some ways subsumed into his locum, who's visiting the town from outside. And I, I guess I wanted to do that because I, I thought that Miles operated a bit like a chorus. He kind of introduces us to the town. He introduces us to all the different things that's happening. He lets us know that there's a dam wanting to be built outside and that there are people opposed to it. Uh, he introduces us to the, some of the older farmers. He introduces us to some of the retirees who, are, who have come here to live here. And he introduces himself with his own life. And Nick, who comes in as his locum after him, uh, kind of carries that forward into the book. Well, I hope it does, anyway. It also gives us an opportunity to get little portraits of characters, some of whom don't, we don't necessarily see again. So, for example, there's an elderly woman living in a sort of cluttered smallness. And I wondered how much this is the life of a GP, getting this insight into a house, and in this case, a sort of squalor and a particular form of ageing, or it's the life of a writer storing up those little details, those little glimpses. Yeah, uh, that, I mean, I think it's both. I've, I, I've inhabited a, the character of Nick and of, and of Miles in this thing, who are doctors, which allows me, I suppose, as the writer, to enter into these situations. I, uh, the character that you're talking about is Margaret e Ewart, who, he goes, who Miles goes to visit early on in the book, just for a consultation. And, I guess she represents for me that aspect of the town. When I first came to, I came to Australia, I've been living here 47 years, I arrived in 1970 and about three years later I ended up um, on a commune on the far south coast of New South Wales, back of Eden, about 35 miles back of Eden. And uh, we were living in tents and, and then in hand-built houses and I mean we were very remote. But we would go in, the nearest town was a town called Toowoomba, which was confusingly almost like Toowoomba. In fact, <laughs> mail from Toowoomba and Toowoomba would often get crossed in the way. Funny enough, there was an, another town there called Wyndham, which was the, um, I think there's a big town of Wyndham somewhere in northwest Western Australia, is that right? Somewhere there's, somewhere there's a, Wyndham in far south coast of New South Wales had had Western Australian's post office built there by some odd bureaucratic accident. <laughs> so there was this sort of vast post office in this town of four houses. But um, uh, the um, Toowoomba was 
a collection of, of shacks. It was just, not, and people were living in these places. And I've, I have transposed some of those shacks to things. They, the houses were little more than weatherboard structures with often vertical corrugated iron as chimneys, and people cooked on them. It was, it, it, nothing had changed since the early settlement days in this part of the world. Well, there was something terribly <coughs> moving about that portrait of that woman, and it felt very, very vivid to me, and it's partly those textures, the detail inside a room, that is what writers do, I guess. But just going back to this character of Miles, so Miles meets her in the house, I thought at first that your novel was going to take us into the life and perspectives of Miles, and it could have, but instead you shift perspectives. But could you give us more of a sense of Miles, the man who we get at the beginning of your novel, by just reading us those first oh, yeah, be couple delighted. of pages? <clears throat> so I'm, I'm just going to read the first two or three pages of the novel here. Um, and as Kate has just said, you don't really need very much introduction because it's page one and two. He's the third generation doctor, and he also lives on a farm. At first light, he hears the sound of a heifer in trouble. Never mind the empties in the kitchen or the one lying next to the lounge. He's up and out in the cold and dirt of the yards, getting the beast in the crush so he can put his hand inside her and find the calf, working his whole arm deep in her womb where he's jammed this extraordinary, impossible bundle of legs that'll kill her if he can't get her to turn. She, roaring all the while, he talking to her in a long, slow stream of profanity, an affectionate soliloquy of half-remembered obscenities. He is, after all, a doctor, not a vet. But the truth is, he loves his cows more these days, his cows and his dogs, they, lying in the dirt, heads across their forepaws, watching doubtfully from the corners of their eyes, more than any other thing. A man who hasn't been with a woman since Sonia died two years ago, and is unlikely to be with anyone else any time soon, with his arm all the way inside a cow in the early morning, groping for new life. By the time it's settled, the calf out, fawn fur curled, sticky with fluid, feeding well, butting its pink nose up against its mother's udder like nothing ever happened, the sort of thing that can bring tears to a man's eyes. It's already late, and he needs to wash and brew coffee, a bit of toast to settle the stomach, putting the bottles in the recycling out the back with hands he can't help but notice shake, wondering if he can keep himself from it until evening, Worried not by the wine, but the spirits, his apparent inability now to stop once he's started, lying on the couch into the small hours, keeping himself just exactly where he needs to be with ever less carefully measured doses of brandy until it's all gone and the television has descended into even more profound meaninglessness than when he started and he hies himself off to bed, the dogs ignoring him, the dogs out for the night by then, disdaining to follow him further down. Showered. Dressed in shorts and shirt, crisply ironed by Melanie, who comes in once a week to clean. White socks, held up by garters, the vertical lines in the knitted weave straight. His brogues with enough polish on them to last another day. His remaining hair brushed tight back against his skull. He takes the Hilux up the dirt to the main road and onto the range, feeling like something close to half a man. A new house being built on what used to be Carlisle's, which 25 years ago was a functioning dairy. You couldn't ever say thriving because none of them had. The dairies had only ever survived. Bought now by incomers from the city, the developers or hippies or tree changers or retirees, buying them up for hobby farms or to build fancy houses, 
planting trees on land the old Scots worked so hard to clear, planting so many trees that now you can barely even see the shape of the place anymore. Not that he's complaining, it's just the irony of it, the unimaginable effort of cutting forests the size of which we'll never see again in our lives, big trees, trees that took them days to fell with axes and cross-cut saws, hauling away the timber they wanted with bullock teams, sliding it down the hills to the coast, burning the rest and rooting out the stumps with mattocks day after bleeding day until there wasn't a tree in sight until it was all rolling paddocks with fat cattle grazing, milked twice a day by hand, only to have their efforts spurned a hundred years on, to have it all replanted by these people who've arrived with their wholemeal roasted marinated Mediterranean focaccias and espresso <laughs> coffees and pristine four-wheel drives, their ideas of an environment which doesn't include people, which doesn't even include birth and death or only in the abstract, abstract, well, that's until it comes to them via the thousand different ways that ill health visits the human form. Which wasn't what he was thinking about at all. It was the calf in the early morning that's brought this up, the fact of its life and the life of its mother given by him, and yet his clear intention to have it killed sometime later to eat without remorse or regret, the need to provide grass for its feed between these two events grass grown on his land, which had once belonged to another Scot who sold it for a pittance to his father, 300 acres, not enough in this kind of geography, where the range breaks away into ridges and gullies, to support anybody, really, land that was most likely better served being covered in trees in the first place. It's both the requirement and the difficulty of straddling these different notions which is troubling his mind, the impossibility of their coexistence. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough portrait of an a older man, I mean, partly dated by his reference to Focaccia, I expect, um, you know, who's drinking, who's at a you know, sort of end of his life. Do you need to still have a sort of tender sympathy to your characters, though? Do you need to have, sorry? A sort of sympathy to them. Because it, a lot of these characters, particularly the male characters, you do a pretty tough portrait of them but I wonder if you still have to have a sort of tenderness for them as well. Oh, I do. I, I really like Miles. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put any spoilers in here at the moment at all, but uh, Miles is a, is a character that I really enjoy a, a lot. He feels to me like he embodies something uh, that's really important in a, in a town. And he is, he does, he is the codex, if you like, of the generations, because it's his father and his grandfather who have been the doctors. There's nobody in the community that hasn't in some way passed through Miles's hands. And, and I feel like he, uh, he's, he's a, a self-effacing character. I think this is something, I, look, I don't know, I, I, I know a few doctors, but I think that doctors are, are fairly obsessive people. I think you have to be in order to be a doctor. You have to be able to present to, to drive yourself all the way through that training and all through the internship and the everything. And, and just that call that's made on you by everybody else all the time. And how to somehow learn to hold yourself back from it and yet still have some kind of relationship with people, I think must be a very hard thing to do. I actually and, and won't comment on that because I live with one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, you know, what you said about the male characters. I, I, did, I don't know if I'm particularly tough on the male characters. I, I do have a great fondness for the character of Eugenie in the book, and I'm sure you're going to get there in a moment, but she's, she was 
uh, a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't expect Eugenie to appear the way that she did, and, and I liked her a lot, and it, but it took me a long, long time to get inside her. I found it much easier to get inside the men than I did to get inside her. Well, before we get to her then, I will... I mean, and I did feel like I, I could quite happily have stayed with Miles as a character, um, but I quite like reading a book when you're jolted out of what you expect it's going to do and suddenly you're in somebody else's perspective and then somebody else's expect, expect perspective. But as your cast of character expanded, it did seem to me that there were more than a few bores in the novel. And so let's talk about Guy, the writer. And I wonder if it's ever an accident in novels when the world of publishing and writers' festivals enter a book, because it seemed to me you were having quite a bit of fun there. Well, look, I'll, Guy's the villain of the piece, let's face it, and, and it felt like it was a good thing to do to give it give him, make him a writer. Uh, I mean, I, I, then, then people couldn't accuse me of somehow or other pointing and making it somebody else. And, but, but of course your publisher and editor are here and I wondered if you made them squirm with your depiction of some of the, the publishing world. But I want to ask you about an area of um, the writing and publishing world that I'm quite familiar with and that is the whole world of writers' festivals. And Guy has made himself into something of a local celebrity and yeah. a commentator. And he's part of a book show um, that has a bit of a David and Margaret thing going on. And a woman called Sheila, who, if she's based on a real person, she has been skewered to death. Um, <laughs> if I can um, <laughs> see if I can quote a line about her. Sheila was insufferable. Clothes which would have looked awkward on a 20-year-old, horribly pleased with herself. And I did laugh out loud rather a lot when I read that bit. So please tell us about Sheila and Guy. <laughs> Sheila and Guy um, have the book show, which is a, a late-night ABC program once a month. And, and it is kind of based around David and Margaret. And, and, and the thing, the thing that, that I have said in the book is... And, and this is all written from Guy's perspective. Whenever you come across Sheila, and it's only a couple of times in the book, you're seeing her from Guy's perspective. And, and he is... He, he doesn't like her at all. And the, the, he says of the program that the pretense is that... I mean, the, the, the program works on the shtick that they don't like each other, but the real pretense in the program is that they can't actually bear each other, that they have to actually sit there and pretend to smile at each other, that they can do that. That somehow when they get off screen, they might be nice to each other. They really do loathe each other, this pair. <laughs> and it, it's actually a kind of a bit of a turning point for the book because... Um, Guy is there one night, and he, uh, they're discussing a new book by Margaret Atwood, and Guy launches into this book and just says how awful it is, and Sheila attacks him for uh, hating female women writers, which is just the kind of classic thing that Sheila would do, and it just drives him crazy, and he just goes a little bit too far and gets Sheila's up Sheila's nose, so... She decides to, um, later on in the program, when they're discussing another person whose book hasn't, they both unusually agree is awful, uh, she says to him, yes, well, maybe he could go off and, and do something, right, uh, like publish his letters. And Guy has just recently published a uh, an issue of his letters that has been panned 
completely worldwide. It was his lead, because he's quite a famous writer. Guy is not just somebody known in Mulaney. He's known, and this is the other thing that, <laughs> that, that this is the in other thing that differs him from me. You know? <laughs> okay, so, so you know, um, he's, uh, he's 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 worldwide. He was he was he was kind of one of the sort of top 20 under under 20 under 40 or something in Britain in the 80s, and he, he's he's got a good reputation. And um, she she says to him, you know. Why don't, why, maybe he has to go off and do this with his correspondence. And he is just caught completely unawares. They're on live television. It's not, sometimes the book show is done just in a little studio, but this one happens to be recorded in front of a live audience. And there's this really awkward silence, far too long for television, where Guy just doesn't know what to say. And Sheila, in order to try and make things better, and says, and I believe there's some stupid dam being built up at Winderan, isn't there, where you live? And Guy takes this as an opportunity to wipe the floor with her. He says, this dam, it's up on the top of a hill. It's in land that's been overcleared and overgrazed for the last hundred years. The water that's collected in it is going to run down the hill. It's going to make electricity. It ticks every box in the green panoply. And everyone who could possibly oppose to it is out there. You know, it's just the typical NIMBY thing, right? And it goes viral, this little, this little rant of his goes viral in Winderan, and then it goes viral a little bit further outside of Winderan, and it gives Guy a kind of new opening in his life, yeah. So he starts to be lured into politics. Yeah. And, of course, this, this whole novel is written in the shadow of both federal politics and also the whole show that is Queensland state politics, which is worthy of novels, shall we say. <laughs> and, um, and you have a powerful businessman Maesca, who's pulling some of the strings. Now, as you say, this is fiction, but I'm imagining there might be a large businessman with some sort of mining or other interests who may possibly yeah. have crossed your mind. Clive, you mean? I mean, no, no, no. Uh, um, you might say that. I no, no, I mean, look, these are, fic <laughs> these are fictional characters, but... but uh, but there's a lot clearly, out there to work clearly, with, isn't there, there are some types in Queensland that you can, you can quite easily pull in. But I think, I mean, Peter Maesker, the character, is, 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 I think, quite an interesting character as well because he is quite an urbane man. He is a self-made man. He, has, uh, he, he was actually a prospector. He had no money at all. He actually had been out there in the Barclay Tablelands and all over those places. Yes, you might expect him to be the baddie of the book, but yeah. he's not Well, really. he, might, he, might, he might yet. The, the interesting thing about this novel is that it was always planned as two novels in the first, but please don't wait for the second novel, okay? Because, <laughs> because, because I'm, I'm a very slow writer. But, you know, I, I, I would like to, I had always wanted to do this thing to write a, a, like a, a comedy of manners, which is a, a literary term for a book which is just about the life in general. I think, I think that you'd say that the books by Jane Austen are comedies of manners. So it's like a contemporary version of that. And I wanted to create this community, and then I wanted to create a community where things move further to the right. And the situation, the, those conflicts between people which don't have any major repercussions, they're just people say bad things about each other in a town. But in, in a different world in, in about 10 years' time, that, that might become much more serious, and we might have much worse repercussions from it. The only trouble with it is because I live in Queensland and because I live in Australia at the moment is that trying to imagine the situation where our polity might become 
equivalent to something in Eastern Europe, for example, has been very, very hard for me. And every time I came across an inkling of how it might go, Tony Abbott stepped in immediately afterward. It was like I was writing a script. I would have coffee with friends in town once a week, and I would say, well, what about this would happen? And then within, within weeks, we would see this government lurching further to the right mm. and taking over these positions for me. It was, it was a very difficult situation, and, and I still haven't resolved quite that, that, that process. I should just mention, too, thinking of comedies of manners set in small communities, Susan Johnson's The Landing is, um, if you've read it, appears to be not too far from here um, as well, and does quite a nice job of a, a comedy of manners set around a, a small town. But let's go back to the hinterland and Windaren itself. So this small town surrounded by beauty, what's at stake? What's under threat? Well, in this particular, in this particular issue, and, and I would quite like to just point out that, that while we, we're talking very much about Windaren, this is the, the... I wanted a situation of conflict in this country town because I wanted to explore the dynamics of the social groupings and the individuals within them and how they were going to work. I don't think there's a country town anywhere in Australia where there's not an environmental battle going on at the moment. I, I, would, mm. I would defy you to tell me a town where they're not... There's not a battle going on about coal seam gas or mining or logging or uh, tourist development or anything like that. So the actual kind of significance of a dam outside Windaren is it, it's, it's essential to the plot of the book, but it's not essential, as it were, to the dynamic of what's going on between the people, if that makes any sense. In this particular situation, what I've imagined is that someone wants to put a dam somewhere um, up near Wutha, you know? <laughs> and uh, there are, there, there's been, but the, the local people have been planting, uh, the particular farmer who owns the land there has been doing some riparian repair for the last 25 years. He and his wife have dedicated themselves to recreating the rainforest through there. So th there is actually something significant that would be lost if, if there was a dam to go there, yeah. And so the younger woman, Eugenie, steps in. She takes an interest. She's quite a vibrant character. So tell us about her. Yeah, well, I mean, Eugenie, uh, she has quite an interesting background. She was actually the child of some hippies. Uh, who had lived in, on the far south coast of New South Wales. I'm bringing my life comes into all of this. I'm afraid I can't help it, you know. But she, uh, so she has this kind of quite interesting backstory, which I'm not really going to go into here. I'd, I'd like to leave it in the novel. But she uh, eventually turned, up, it turned out to be a nurse and had married uh, an electrician. And he, he was uh, from this local area. His parents were, were dairy farmers. And they've moved back there. The parents have given them a block of land which they've cut off the dairy farm and they've moved up here. And she has two daughters. And she's not very, the marriage is not going well. I don't think we're doing any spoilers in saying this in the, in the book. The marriage is not going well. And she, uh, she's made friends with an older woman who happens to be the woman that I mentioned just a moment ago, who's been engaged in the riparian repair on, on the creek. And she's, she's never met a woman like Lyndall. Lyndall is a fascinating character. And the interesting thing, if I can just talk a little bit about the process of the book, is that 
By the time I actually sent it to UQP, it had gone through three complete drafts. In draft two, Lindor had about 7,000 words of her own. She was one of the characters in the book. But it just seemed to me like I couldn't fit her in. When, when I actually came to the third draft, I, had to, I could see this much finer and simpler book inside that book. And one of the characters who had to go was Lindor. But it was with terrible regret mm -hmm. that I kind of cut uh, enormous amount of Lindor because she had been an artist. She'd had a studio in McQuirter's in the Valley in the 80s. She'd had a whole life to her, which my character, Eugenie, really likes a lot. And she's, she's an old woman. She's 25 years older or something older than Eugenie. And she admires her a lot. And when this dam is announced that's going to threaten Lindell's property, Eugenie gets involved in the campaign. She's never been involved in a political campaign before. And she finds that she has a, a penchant for it. She can talk. She can stand up in front of a television camera. She's an attractive woman. And so she becomes the spokesperson for the No Dam campaign. But she's not just a straightforward sort of environmentalist or um, political character, is she? I mean, it's as if she, deserves, she has the right to some passion in her life, whether that's through her friendship with Lindell and having a belief in something, as well as you know, being married to somebody who I think the sort of literary way of analysing her um, husband David would be to say that he's a bit of a dick, really. <laughs> that would be my very nuanced reading of that character. I thought I was the one that was harsh on the men in the book. Yeah. <laughs> I think you are pretty harsh on the men in the book, actually. So what, why does she need this passion? Was that, is that a driving force? As you created this character, is that what she was looking for? Some sort of passion or vibrance or meaning in her life? Well, I think no, Eugenie is one of these people, uh, there's lots of us around, who, who, whose lives are... They, she's kind of parked various parts of herself at different times during her life because of what happened to her as a child, then because of what happened to her as a result of, of that incident. She's kind of... There's little bits of Lindor, I'm sorry, of Eugenie being left behind in various different places. And what... You know, this is the thing about the book. We happen to come upon her at that very moment when she meets this older woman who's a bit of an inspiration to her. She also gets a lot of really good feedback from being able to see that she can do something, that she can actually be a spokesperson, that she can get engaged with a group of people as, as opposing something. So there's this team of people working together. And she also meets the new locum who's come in as well. And all these forces bring these, there's parts of her that want to, want to realign. They want to get back together. And this, this concatention of events brings it all on. So yes, she has a lot of passion in her, but it's been repressed. It's been kept down, and we're going to see it come out as the, as the novel unfolds. In terms of the, the forces that shape your novel, both the characters and, and the plot, after a while I was struck by... Um, the fact they were lost children. So there were these underlying stories of grief. And I wonder how much that was a, a structure that you saw there holding up the novel. Well, there is, clearly. I mean, there are some correlations between Guy Lamprey, the, the, the writer, and Eugenie. There's, there's lots of things going on there between the two of them. And I, I don't think that I am particularly harsh on these men. I, I think men... They need to be pulled up a little bit, really. I, 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 think, I think it's interesting. 
I, I was born in 1951, so I, I kind of came into my adulthood in the 70s, and there was this great resurgence of uh, self-awareness, as it were, which came out of a lot of, a lot of it was through women. Women started to take their place. Feminism came in. There were these very strong women who, be, who got together in consciousness raising groups and did whatever they did there. And the men kind of thought this was fantastic because it kind of was associated with a kind of free love and all of the rest of it. And, and we liked to kind of ride on the back of it. But a lot of men didn't actually engage in that same level of consciousness, ranging, consciousness raising. We stayed in our little silos expecting women to be who they were before. And it caused, a lot of, it caused a lot of strife in our society and continues to cause a lot of strife in our society. I don't know what it's like to be the next generation, but, but that's something that I see about men that I meet, is this thing of... of, try, of, of I, look, this is something I observe, as mm -hmm. it were. But I thought it was interesting as a sort of through line. There's, there is grief and sadness as well as these stories of passion. And um, the character of Helen, who we haven't talked about, Guy's wife, is a particularly, I thought, one of the most sympathetic characters in the book. Um, although at times he was quite resentful of her. But there's a terrible sadness associated with her. How would you describe Helen for us? Well, Guy uh, met Helen when she was in the publishing industry, actually. So we've got my publisher here again here, so I've got to, got to be careful about these, these things. But she was in the publishing industry in London when Guy went there as the great new voice of writing, of Australian writing. And he met her in the editing house, and they started an affair. And she was... Um, Look, I don't want to give too much of this away, really, but she was, she was uh, there, she fell in love with him, he betrays her, then he chases her back to Australia when she comes back here, and say, she says, look, I want to live here. Her parents are living down uh, in Kiwana or something like that. She says, I don't want to live down there, I want to live in the hinterland. Um, would you like to come here and live with me? Which is why Guy is kind of pulled out of his metropolitan existence in London. Otherwise, he would have stayed as a, an intellectual there. But he's been kind of pulled back into rural Queensland. And there's a real resentment in Guy about this in some ways the whole time. He feels like he's been deposited in the provinces of the provinces the whole time. And he is constantly trying to fight to bring... Uh, to bring culture to that district. Well, they're know? a beautiful couple, aren't they? They're urbane and they live in a beautiful house. And yeah. They're stylish and... Yeah. And she becomes, you know, she works in the co-op and she does all those different things. Uh, and, and, and Miles, of course, is in love with her, you know? Because mm. Miles in love, that's, she's kind of the kind of woman that she would be, yeah. At one point in the book, and it's important to talk about, not talk about why she says this, but Helen turns to Guy and says, if you write about this, this thing that's happened to us, I will never speak to you again. And I guess that goes back to that whole question of what your responsibilities are as a writer. Because she makes it very clear, this thing is off limits. And I wondered if that's something, you know, how much you have to grapple with that question of, what's off limits, what stories you can tell, what things you can even dredge up from yourself to write about. Because it's a very powerful point in the book when she says that, I think. 
And, and I think that, that it's, a, it's a very mean thing for her to say to him, actually. I really do. Because I think that writers have to be able to write everything, really. But the thing, a nice thing about it is you don't have to write it about yourself. You can give it to other people. And if you're, if you're clever about it, you can give it to fictional people. It doesn't have to... You don't have to... Th there's been... The literary history is full of these stories of friendships betrayed because people feel like they, they were used in other books, are used by sort of writers in their books. Mm. I don't think that anybody could accuse me of that because, because I, I think it's... But you grapple with it, don't you? I, I do, you have I to do, work gra out how to I do, do grapple it. with it and, because I think it's very, it's very hard to... And it's also very hard to know where the actual limit is because <clears throat> nobody wants to read about your therapy section, sessions. They want to read a story. I had a lot of time. I came to writing quite late. I'm 66 now, and I, I don't think my first... I think my first novel was published when I was 54 or something like that. And part of that was that I... I took a, I, I found writing fiction very, very hard. I, I preferred to write a journal, and I was... I, I think I was probably ahead of my time because memoir has become of the, the thing of the time, but, and I've mm. kind of put it away, but there's about three million words of memoir that I had, and I was still doing it when I first came to Mulaney here 28 years ago. And what I was doing was writing down everything. I would have a conversation with people, and I would go home late that night, and I would write anywhere between three and 6,000 words, just trying to get down what it was people had said and to try and get their vernacular, their dialogue to get, but also to get the essential meaning of it. And it was very important to me. It was, it was my writing practice, as it were. One of the things about it, which I found very interesting when I first started journal writing, and this is like 40 years ago or something, was that when I first started doing it, I would go home at the end of the day after a really interesting conversation and set out to write down what had happened and I couldn't remember anything that anybody else had said. I'd only remember what I'd said. <laughs> and, and, and there was that thing that I had to actually learn to listen to, to, what, to, to other people. I, had to, I mean, wasn't it? I mean, not, not just think that I was having an interesting conversation because I was saying something, but actually get, get in to hear what they were saying and, and listen to their vernacular. But it was never coming out. I could never get it out onto the page. I tried to... Um, print some of the journals and change the names and put it out there, but it was never—it never felt like it was working to me. And I guess it was uh, there was a point in my life where I had to say, "Enough! I'm going to start writing fiction." And the way that I did it was an interesting way because I started writing film scripts. And the thing about a film script is that it's 120 pages long and it's written in a, a, a particular format. There's very, very few words on each page that you do. And that's because every page represents one minute of filming. And so it's all about the dialogue, it's all about getting it down there, and it's also all about the story. And the story becomes the, 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 the primal aspect of what you're doing. And everything else is sacrificed to the story. You can, if a character isn't working, you can change their gender, their age, you can change their name, you can change their profession, you can change everything in them. And that was it, was, it was a great release for me to learn to do that and to, to be able to sort of realize the story is the really important thing. And I don't think it actually got any easier for me to make stuff up, but I decided that one of the ways that I... I've come up with a writing practice, which I don't know if... I've talked about it to a few other people, and people have said that's quite unusual. But I, I, So let me just tell you about it for a little bit, because what I do is I've got... 
on my computer, I've got two files. I've got what I call my manuscript file, which is, it's in Times New Roman, it's 12-point, it's double-spaced, it looks like a manuscript, which is actually, I should say, really quite boring. If you've ever actually read a manuscript, it doesn't look like a book. It's really, there's, a, there's very few words on the page, and it's got wide margins and all these odd spaces in it. But that's my manuscript file, which is where the story is going down. And then I have another file, which is called my talking file. And my, my practice is that I'm not allowed to leave the room. I mean, I'm not allowed to stop doing my writing until there's a thousand words down. And sometimes that can take about an hour, or sometimes I can still be there at six o'clock at night without anything, without anything happening at all. And I find the talking file really helps me because if I'm really stuck, which I often am because I've got two characters in a room and a third character comes in and I suddenly don't know anything about that third character and I have to stop and make up who that character is and every idea that comes forward as to who this character could be is boring, it's cliched, it's just awful. And so there's this kind of awful criticism going on in the back of my head about everything that I'm doing. So I just flick between that over to my talking file and then I can talk about this character in, without worrying about it. Nobody's ever going to read that file. You know, it really will. I mean, after I'm dead, those files will be deleted. They won't, you won't. Nobody will ever see these talking files because they're just this thing about process. Because what I've found is that if I can just get the words to come down, what happens is the words give rise to other words. It's almost like there is a, there is a thread. If I can just start, if I can just get that thread unrolling, by the end of a paragraph, I'm in territory that I didn't know existed before I went into it. And so that, I guess, is where the untold backstory goes. Yeah. And um, exactly, exactly. All those, all those things that I'm not telling you about the characters that make them seem like they're rounded is because there's tens of thousands of words on this encrypted file. And how know? much that comes from people you know whose lives you've plundered and people you've created. I actually find that really interesting. Um, You're not going to let me go on this one, well, are you, <laughs> No, I've, I've been thinking about it because, and oddly, I'm going to quote two writers with the same first name, which is where it gets really confusing. But Colm Toybin, who actually just got a Lifetime Achievement Award for writing from um, America, the Irish writer, he basically says, like Nora Ephron, he says, it's all copy. You can use anything. You know, your, your grandmother dies in front of you, you can write that. You can take any of those stories, it's all fair game, write it first, tell them and apologise after, but you must use everything. The other column, Colin McCann, who's just written a wonderful book called uh, Letter to a Young Writer, which sounds like Letter to a Young Poet that Rilke wrote, um, he says, no, you absolutely can't do that. Write towards what you know, use those things, but it must be fiction. You mustn't put you know, your girlfriend's body on the page and your best friend's trauma. Um, you must not do that. You've got a sort of ethical responsibility not to. But there are, it seems to me that there are the two approaches and they're, they're often sort of in conflict. And I imagine they're in conflict as a writer, but also as to how you sort of explicate yeah. what you do. And reading these two writers, both of whom I admire enormously, and I think they're wonderful writers. Well, Colin McCann is just fantastic. Yeah. Transatlantic is one of the best books I've read in a long time. Yeah, and they're both so wonderful, and they yeah. have such diametrically different ideas about what the role of a writer is in society and what the sort of ethics of it are and what you do with other people's stories. So I actually am always interested in these questions for writers. 
Um, and I guess talking to you here, where with an audience full of people who might wonder, is that could that be him? Yeah. Um, or could could that be me? Did I say that? Because there will be snatches of conversation yeah. that are going to turn up. Um, I wonder if it makes your sense of your audience a bit weirder actually looking at this audience than imagining any other audience out there. Well, yes, um, this is my... I, I did say this was an odd experience. I, I, am, <laughs> I, am in, I am in front of people who are, you know, those of you who are going to read the book, and I, I really appreciate that, are going to look at it and say, you know, where is that? Who is that? And th there's no way that you can not do that, really, because, because of that. But I stress that I put, as you say, I put real people's lives into the talking file. If there's something I wanted from somebody, I'll put it into the talking file and transmute it into the fictional character, and I'll give that aspect to somebody else in some way. And also, and it I does think, move think, everywhere, this moment. I think that's a really... I think it's a really serious... I'm, I'm with Colin McCann on this. I, I think it's a, an ethical decision because there's this idea that somehow writers are above the normal fray and that we're allowed to be uh, emotionally irresponsible. We're allowed to live irresponsible lives because what we do is so important. And I think that's bullshit. I really do. I, I, I think that... Maybe that's because I'm, I'm only a, a, a small-time writer, but I, do th I think it's important to be a person. I think kindness is... Look, you know, now I'm starting to sound really like a Mulaney person, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 no, I, I don't think it's a Mulaney thing. I think, this is, I think kindness is, is probably the most important aspect. It's the one thing I've learned in life, and there's very few things that I could say with, unequivocally that I've learned, but kindness is really, really important. Well, and George I, Saunders would agree with you. Yeah. The, um, you know, the great American writer, and it was one of the things that he has been talking about a lot lately. I mean, both in terms of what it means to be a reader and the whole thing about empathy and reading, but, yeah, kindness and generosity, which and, isn't and that, actually as wet as it sounds. And, and, that means, and, and that means in your personal life as well, in your, as well as in your writing life. So I can't take my wife's life and just put it on the page if it seems convenient to me. I've got to, you know, it's just not, I don't think that's on. The other thing that happens She didn't is, sign up to that when she married me, no? Yes, well, otherwise, I mean, imagine the sort of anxiety whenever anybody spoke to a writer wondering <laughs> what it is that might, that might happen next. Um, now, there is a lot going on in this novel, and at one point, it, it suddenly becomes, you know, a sort of action mystery you know, heart in mouth, oh my God, what's going to happen, what's going to happen next? And um, so there are, there are things going on about what's at stake in terms of politics and the environment and plot yeah. as well, aren't there? So it was important to keep that sort of pace of the plot going yeah. for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, reading, reading books is something really quite exceptional. In, in, I think, in our culture. I don't think there's any other comparable situation where somebody gives so much of their time to another person. I mean, if we meet somebody for a cup of coffee, we might listen to them for an hour. If they're having trouble, we might give them their, our, our undivided attention for an hour. A novelist gets somebody's undivided attention for about 20 hours. You know, you just... And, and there, are, there are really specific rules around that, it seems to me. 
I've talked to, like you, I've interviewed a lot of authors, and I brought this up with, um, with a couple of writers. I think it was with, um, with Karen Joy Fowler, who said, I didn't, I didn't sign any rule book. I didn't sign up for anything. I can do what I want, you know? But for me, it feels to me like you have to, you have to respect the reader, and you have to give them some reason to want to turn the page. So there has to be a narrative thread running through it. There has to be something that makes them want to, want to go through all the other ramblings and observations and pictures of people that you, you're giving. It's not just a series of random vignettes. There has to be something that's leading you on through it. We are all completely beside ourselves, is the name of Karen Joy Fowler's book. I was just checking that I knew it, <laughs> and I interviewed her too. It was a, yeah. Well, and that's one of those books that grapples with big ethical and moral questions. Yes. And, and there's a very, whole very trick delicately. to it that is revealed on page 120 or something that makes you suddenly go, oh, right, that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, and you can't give away the trick in that book the same way that we can't really talk about the sort of thriller parts of your book because it's giving the plot away, which is why I'm always interested in talking about both process and characters. Yeah. Now, are there any central characters who we haven't really talked about? We haven't talked much about Nick, the younger, no. the younger doctor, who is a very charming character. It was very easy to spend time with him. And both the doctors have a bit of an eye for the ladies as well, don't they? Yes. They're slight philanderers in quite an entertaining way. Um, but I think this is probably not a bad time to turn to questions from you. Um, and you may or may not want to stand up and say, you know, that was not me, I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> and if you wouldn't mind, just because this is being recorded, just waiting till you've got the microphone and we have somebody giving us a hand here. The first question is always the hardest, so don't be too that, that's, that's Mary, and she said she had 20 questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stephen, I really loved your book. Um, for me, um, what was happening between the characters was much more captivating than the environment and the politics. And I got to the end of the book and I thought the ending was terrific, but I really, really wanted to know <laughs> what happens to Eugenie and Nick. And I thought, can't you write a sequel and kill off some of those other characters and forget <laughs> about the dam? Well, I, I am I am struggling my way through um, the first draft of the of the of the sequel to this book. Yeah. So so there is there is going to be a sequel. There is going to be a sequel to with Eugenie and Nick in it. So because I thought they were very strong characters, and I mean all through the day I was thinking, oh, I wonder what happened and what did he do and this this is a <laughs> whatever. Yeah. That's Thank a nice you. example though of the way that books stay in your imagination, don't they? Because if you never write another a sequel to it, the characters still exist and you can still keep that, can't you? You can create your, their, their lives for them. Times, do you think other writers have written a novel so close to home as you have? Oh, that's, that's a very good question. I, I, I think that most writers do write their novels quite close to home. I, I don't think I don't think what I've I don't think what I've done here is particularly strange. I mean, my good friend Inga Simpson uh, wrote uh, the book um, Nest, which was set down on the Sunshine Coast. There, uh, she also just wrote. Uh, and people, I'm I'm just thinking of various different writers I know who who do set the places very very important in a novel. Things do happen in places. They don't just happen. 
that we write a fiction, but if, you, if that fiction is happening somewhere nebulous that has no solidity to it, it becomes very hard the, to tie down. It becomes very hard to actually get the characters in and out of rooms and into places that are real and, and, and have some kind of uh, meaning to the reader. I, I think places, I think places is an, a kind of under, under discussed but an essential part of any novel. And this happens to be the place where I'm living here at the moment. My second novel, 88 Lines, about 44 women, was set largely in Scotland, where I grew up, and was in some ways a kind of pee into that country. And An Accidental Terrorist was set where I'd lived on a, commune, or a community on the far south coast of New South Wales for, for 10 years. So, uh, yeah, I, I like to set novels where I live, and I'm, I don't think I'm in any way different to, mo to most writers than that. You know, I mean, we were talking about Colin McCann. He, the, the book that I mentioned of his was Transatlantic, which was set in, in Ireland where he lives. I mean, I think, I think we write about what we know in some ways, yeah? And Ashley Hayes' um, latest novel, well, both of her novel, her novel The Railway Man's Wife is set on the south coast of New South Wales, but her most recent one, whose name has gone completely out of my head, A Hundred, A Hundred Small Lessons, is set in Brisbane, and some of those stories come from the house she lives in, and stories about the woman who used to live there. And I think Australian fiction, I mean, and American fiction does it as well, puts a lot of store on specific places as well. I mean, it is such a part of all writing, but I do think in Australian fiction, it is such a big part of fiction and reimagining place. I've always been astonished at the way the Americans uh, put so much importance on place, so that we actually, probably as Australians, could rattle off 50 or 60 American names of places, Topeka or something like that, or to, because it's in songs, it's in, you know, whatever, it, it comes again and again and again in a way that the British have never done or the Australians have rarely done. Where yeah, they, or have fictionalised it. Yeah. So you, you call it Winderan yeah. rather than yeah. calling it Mullaney. Uh, yeah, and they uh, do it in songs as well, popular yeah. culture in America. We've all been on trains through Detroit somehow. Yeah, um. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yes, Stephen, I'm just wondering if you, as you wrote this, envisaged a movie? <laughs> um, no, look, I didn't, as I said, I did a bit of script writing for a while, so I do have a kind of cinematic view of things, but look, I don't know how you would make a film of this because it does have four distinct narrators, which makes it very difficult cinematically to, to, um, to film, I would have thought. You'd have had to... Look, I don't know how anybody ever does an adaptation of a novel, really, because a novel is such a long story. And in order to... I remember reading about Michael and Dutchy and The English Patient, and one of the things that you spoke about was that he said the film, which was an excellent film, was one where he'd just taken one story out of that. I think there was five kind of layered stories within it, and you just have to say, look, this is one piece. I'm going to tell one of these stories out of this novel rather than trying to tell the whole thing. So now, look, in answer to your question, whereas I, I, I do see certain scenes very cinematically, I don't see it as a... I, don't, I, I couldn't imagine it as a film. Whereas and, and some of my earlier writing, like An Accidental Terrorist, I did think would make a very good film. Or even television series, if there's any budding television series writers there. You know. <laughs> and the third from the front. 
Yes, thank you. And Steve, uh, we're all very proud of having you in our community. And, 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 I, and I was thinking of a few things along the way. In fact, I thought about the movie too. I thought, this guy's got to line up a movie on this one. Um, um, but I haven't read the book yet, <laughs> so I'm talking prematurely. But, but the, I don't know whether you ought to give us a manual, though, like when, when we want to fight our environmental battles, so you're such a, a long and warrior for over decades, you want to document you know, an abbreviated uh, actionless situation from your <laughs> very sort of thoughtful assessment of them. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, look, I bring a lot of that, the battles that we've had about the environment um, into the book, because it seems to me that if you're any, even sort of halfway intelligent at the moment, you have to understand that you have to have come to the conclusion that we have to protect almost every bit of environment that's left in the world that's in a natural state. And we have to actually try and repair um, the other bits that are, that are damaged. And it really surprises me that so many people don't agree with that point of view. I I'm astonished. Every day I'm astonished by it. And I think that you know, what I've done in creating the character of Guy Lamprey is, is, is create a, a man who has put his own ambitions ahead of that. He knows that perfectly well, but his own ambitions uh, are tied to this idea of the destruction of a particular part of the environment. And I, I wanted to explore that and try and work out what it is that, that would make him do that. And I think that there is a cost to it. There's going to be a cost to it, that behaviour for Guy Lamprey. There's going to be a cost to the community. There's going to be a cost to everything by people behaving like that. And yeah, so that's one of the things. I mean, if I, I, I keep saying this is a fiction, but this is, you know, there are certain things that are real truth to me that I'm talking about. And one of those things that's in the book is that. But hopefully, once again, I'll say I'm not being didactic. I'm not lecturing anybody about it. It's just something that, I, that I've observed. And it's not exactly a romantic view of activist politics either, I'd perhaps say. <laughs> <laughs> there are divisions, shall yeah. we say. Hi, Stephen. This is a question from Jenny Fitzgibbon in Ireland. I was talking to her early on the phone. And she enjoyed your reading of this book at Club Acoustic so much, she was wondering when the audio edition might be coming out. <laughs> Well, you know, look, that's a very lovely question and very nice to Jenny in, in, in Ireland. Jenny is a, a tireless environmental warrior in this community and she just, uh, she, she's living over there because her father's not well. Is that right? Yeah. So um, she's, she's sadly missed around here because she's, I mean, tireless doesn't really go halfway towards what she does. Um, look, hopefully, hopefully um, uh, that uh, Belinda or somebody will approach me to do an audio version of it. Whether or not I would read it, I don't know. I'll, maybe they'll find some, some fine actor to read it. That would be very good. Stephen Fry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Michael Robotham, who will be here speaking on um, Sunday morning, I asked him about audiobooks, and he doesn't read his own, but they do give him samples of actors reading his, and he gets to um, select them. And um, one of his earlier books was, I think it was Derek Jacobi. It was somebody who seemed quite unlikely. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> you know, one of those big 
thespians who read it. And he said that's actually a really interesting process, listening to your own work read by somebody else, and it can really change the way that you understand um, your own book. Um, well, I was actually just going to say, as, as what I usually say at the end of these discussions, is that here at the Mullaney Celebration of Books, I'm Kate Evans for Radio National, and we've been speaking to Stephen Lang about his novel, Hinterland, published by UQP. Please do thank him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Such a poem. <laughs>